certainly is. Okay, good evening, everyone. So our topic for tonight is Jerusalem in the period of the Crusaders. So this is going to be a period of time where the Jews don't play a very prominent role in the political story of the city, but they are there and oftentimes suffering terribly because there is conquest and back and forth. And whenever that happens, a lot of people die, especially when you're not on the winning team. So let's begin in the Abbasid period, which was about 750 to 969. The Abbasid period, Jerusalem was diminished in the Islamic world. If at an earlier time, it was potentially part of the Hajj, a pilgrimage, just like Mecca and Medina, you have to go to Jerusalem. So at this time, it was dumbed down to a mere pious visit. So this would be an important question, how significant in the religious thinking of Islam is Jerusalem. What do we like to say? That to us, Jerusalem is number one, always number one. But to them, what is it? Number three or somewhere down the bottom of the the list. So when will that happen? Around this time, that's when it becomes clear that Jerusalem is at best third in their ranking system. Caliph Harun allowed Charlemagne around the year 800 to build a Christian quarter around the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And nominal peace existed between the various faiths around in the early 800s. Legend has it that Charlemagne himself visited Jerusalem, but that's totally ahistorical. It never happened. A lot of these myths will come about of so-and-so went to Jerusalem. Oftentimes, wasn't really true. Caliph Mamun, in 831, further downgraded Jerusalem by stripping the gold off the Dome of the Rock. Well, I guess he needed a little cash. It would not be restored until when? In your lifetimes, not mine. When? Just before the 67 war, King Hussein, a young King Hussein, in the early 1960s, restored the gold to the Dome of the Rock. It was like a, a, it was a gold, it was like a lead color prior to that for a thousand years. It didn't look very good. He wanted it to look good. Just as the Jews in Israel were building the Knesset, he was putting gold on the dome a mile and a half away. Was it gold or was it really a gold alloy? It was a gold alloy. It looked like gold. It wasn't necessarily pure gold. All right, fine. Then, under the Turks in the early 10th century, Muslims became less tolerant. This is an important point. Sometimes there'll be generations where the two major religions, not Judaism, but Christianity and Islam, will uh, be kindly disposed towards each other. Everybody wants to get their way, but we'll give, the, we'll give a few crumbs to the other team. And there are moments when it's my way 100% and you get nothing. So 10th century, a little less tolerant. Part, part of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was turned into a mosque. Around this time, Jews were divided into three camps. What are the three different communities of Jews living in 10th century Jerusalem? Can you tell me? Three different types of Jews. Don't tell me Ashkenazim and Sephardim. <laughs> no. Rabbinites, Karaites, and Khazars, who were ethnically not Jewish, but were Jewish by religion. The Khazar kingdom, okay, which converted to, to Judaism, sent representatives to, to Jerusalem and had a community there. Of the three groups, the Turkish overlords tended to favor the Karaites for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why. Under the more tolerant Fatimids, everybody's from, but in their own way. 
Okay. Of now, Karaites, the ones who yeah. followed only the Old only Testament. The, only the Bible, yeah. So under the more tolerant Fatimids in 969 to 1099, the Jewish community in Egypt, which was a wealthy community, and in Jerusalem, which was an impoverished community, was led by Jewish physician scholar merchants. The classic example in a later time would be Rambam. But at an earlier time, th- these characters existed, and they were often given the title of Nagid. Okay, one such figure was a man by the name of Paltiel, and he won rights for the Jews uh, to pray in a synagogue on the Mount of Olives at the Pillar of Absalom and at the Golden Gate. So these are locations near the inner sanctum, important uh, biblical type locations where Jews would want to pray, and they had not been allowed to do so for for some time. He secured these concessions for the community. Moreover, on the festivals, Jews were allowed to uh, circle around the Temple Mount seven times. When, when do we do that? So Hakafas and Simchas Torah, but imitating the the uh, Sukkot fest, the, the Sukkot observance of the Aravot, the, the Hoshanot. Okay, uh, but the main synagogue in this era was the cave. The, who has ever heard of the cave? Ever hear of the cave? Okay, so the cave was a a subterranean area on the Western Wall, just opposite the Holy of Holies. What is there today? So the tunnels, the Kotel tunnels are there, and you see these ladies davening with the Tehillim, with the candles lit, as you walk down the Kotel tunnel, they'll say this is the spot that's closest to the Kodesh Kadashim. So in 10th and 11th century Jerusalem, this was the cave, the Ma'ara, where Jews daven. This was the, the preferred spot. Excuse me, yeah. but wasn't the Kotel Tunnel yeah. really street level? It was, it was street level 2,000 years ago. Over time, the street level became elevated. It's, it's not, 1,000 years ago, it's not where it is today. It was considerably lower, but it was higher than what it had been in temple times. Okay, now, the, uh, the wealthy Jews of Cairo funded the Jerusalem Academy and the mystical group of what we might call religious Zionists, who were the mourners of Zion, the Aveled Sion. Still, this tzedakah money was hardly enough for the Jewish community. It was small and very impoverished. And it was subject to ruin whenever there's a caliph who doesn't like the Jews or wants to extend his hand in violence against the city of Jerusalem altogether. One such person was the crazy caliph Hakim, who did a tremendous degree of damage to the whole city and disappeared in 1021. He just like went off into the night. Nobody knows what happened to him. He was, he was insane. He damaged the churches and the synagogues. An earthquake in 1033 further damaged the cave. So this was not a great century for Jew, at least the first half of the century for Jewish life. But then by the 1050s, things turned around. Jerusalem was once again flourishing as a pilgrim city of 20,000 inhabitants. 20,000 is not so much, even by the standards of that era, but still it's going to be a lot more than the two or 3,000 people that are left after various wars uh, wipe out the bulk of the population. Jewish, pilgr- Jewish pilgrims are arriving from France and Italy. So you have Christian pilgrims, you have Islamic pilgrims, but you even have Jewish ones coming from Europe. Then, in 1054, an important world historical event happens, which has a significant impact on the, um, the prestige of Jerusalem. 
What happens in 1054? The Pope and the Eastern Patriarch excommunicate each other. So the two, the two branches of Christianity separate absolutely. So now you have Eastern Orthodox and the Latin Westerners. Why does this affect Jerusalem? Because nobody wants to give up on the historic holy places to the other team. You want it for yourself. The other guy shouldn't have a role to play in those holy places, whether it's Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Church of the Nativity, or any of the other shrines in and around Jerusalem. Okay, well, pilgrimage was dangerous, and death was never far away. Attacks by the Bedouin were quite common. Then, in 1073, the Turkoman soldier leader, Atsiz, defeated the Fatimids, and the city was ravaged and many people died. Christendom was shocked by the defeat of the Byzantine emperor, the fall of Jerusalem, and the slaughter of pilgrims. The pilgrimage was in danger. Something drastic had to be done. And what is that something drastic? The the crusade, the first crusade. Okay, so Christian soldiers are now making their way to the Middle East, not merely as mercenaries looking for a piece of the pie, looking for material gain, but to rescue Jerusalem for the proper religion. There were negotiations in the summer and spring of 1099, and the Islamic world was fragmented into small warring baronies. There was no united Islam at that time. And the Arabs had lost their empire to Turks. So on June 3rd, 1099, the Christian army of knights and foot soldiers took Ramla. By June 7th, they were camped out overlooking the hilltops, overlooking Jerusalem. So here we are, an army of 1,200 knights of um, 12,000 soldiers, a Frankish army, is going to face off against the holy city of Jerusalem in the hands of a Turkish Muslim sultan with a population behind the city walls of a few Christians, uh, but mostly Muslims and some Jews. Okay. When the crusaders got to Jerusalem to impose the siege, the Muslim and Jewish inhabitants had reason to be optimistic that they could actually win this battle. Why? Because first of all, the city had 30,000 inhabitants. It's a big, bigger city at that point. They were well stocked with provisions and water, which distinguishes it from when the years 66 to 70, when Jewish provisions behind the city wall against Titus and Vespasian was burned down by Jew on Jew fighting. And that's really what, what, what cost them any chance of winning. Okay, the Egyptian army was charging from the north to rescue the Muslims in Jerusalem. So, you know, the cavalry is coming, so to speak. Jerusalem's defenders had Greek fire flamethrowers, which was the advanced, like, you know, uh, uh, weaponry of the time. And the Christians didn't have it. And they were well armed with conventional warfare arms. And they were behind very formidable walls. The walls of Jerusalem at that time were seemingly quite secure and not impregnable, but, you know, very, very thick. The Frankish army wasn't that large, 1,200 knights, 12,000 soldiers. They had divided an uninspiring leadership. Their horses had either been eaten because people were hungry and eat horse flesh or useless because where are you going to use horses in the Judean hills? Horses are good in Europe on a flat surface in France, you know, in the plains, but not uh, in the stony hilltops of, of Judea. 
camels, horse, and foot. Yeah. Okay. Did the, did the Muslims and the Jews also have the advantage of elevation because it's very hilly? So there is an advantage of elevation. However, that advantage was eventually squandered once uh, the Christian army reaches the, the, the gates of the city. Then it's a, sort of an even playing surface. Okay. The main crusaders were Count Robert of Flanders, Raymond of Toulouse, Duke Robert of Normandy, and Godfrey of Lyon. Uh, why the crusade? Why was it happening and why was it happening then? The idea was the product of one man. And we've discussed this in the history of anti-Semitism when we discussed what happened to the Jewish communities of Europe as a result of the First Crusade. What we never discussed until now, because we, we, we were not really discussing Eretz Israel, but last year was what happens to the Jews of Yerushalayim. Uh, we know spire worms and mines, they are effectively destroyed. And the Jews of Germania, uh, Ashkenaz, classic Ashkenaz, suffers a terrible blow. But what happens in Eretz Israel? So the idea was the product of Pope Urban II, who at Claremont on November 27th, 1095, demanded the conquest of Jerusalem and the redemption of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The liquidation of the infidel would mean remission of sins for the fighters. You get if what? If you defeat the Muslims and take Yerushalayim. Okay, well, that's a good deal. So it's a Christian version of Islamic jihad, basically. Yeah. Was there any economic aspect to this? I would think there would have to be. Yes, so it's absolutely the case that there were those people who were adventurers and, and fortune seekers who wanted to do this because they thought they could get rich. However, the scholars tend to agree, and Montefiore also in the book, uh, is of the viewpoint that most of the foot soldiers who participated, not necessarily the knights, but the foot soldiers who participated were sincere believers that their act of war making would give them expiation for sin, and they had sins aplenty that they needed to atone for, including sins that they would do while on their way to the, to the crusade. There was all sorts of debauchery and, and, and thievery that had to be atoned for, but this will, this will accomplish it. Okay, now Christians at that time were attacking when various factions of the Muslims lacked any and all concept of Islamic solidarity, which means that they have a better chance to win. When you, when you have a united front, so you can put up a good fight. When every man for himself or every little faction for itself, you're more likely to do what? To capitulate and to strike a deal where you get to live and make some concessions, but you don't fight to the bloody finish. Okay, then, on, and, and although this is not what's going to happen in 1099, it will happen in later rounds of the Crusades where there's a negotiated settlement. Okay, on June 13th, there's an attack. It fails. The Christians realized they needed more ladders, more catapults, more siege engines, and you need wood for that. Is wood easy to come by in Judea? In the summertime? Not really. No. Uh, there, there aren't that many trees. I mean, Masech uh, sukkah. How many walls do you need for a sukkah? Two. Two and a half, and not even a half. So why? Because wood is hard to come by in Eretz Israel. We, we, the halacha couldn't be that you need four walls, or even three full walls. So they needed wood. Where did they get the wood from? They got lucky. There were a bunch of ships from uh, general Italian sailors who landed at Jaffa, they disassembled and they, they disembarked, disassembled their boats and carried the wood from the boats to Jerusalem and they used the wood to build ladders and siege engines. Okay. Now the crusaders were ready on the night of July 13th, a month after the initial attack. 
They had catapults and cannonballs to soften up the enemy. The next morning, the attack was successful. Tens of thousands of people were butchered to death, including several thousand in a last stand at the Temple Mount in Al-Aqsa. What happened to the Jews? The Jews huddled in their synagogues and were burned alive. So this was a really bad uh, uh, moment in the history of humanity and the history of the Jewish people, the destruction of Jerusalem in 1099. Jerusalem and its holy places were a mess. And I'm going to tell you what happened next, and you'll tell me what the 20th century equivalent is. Christians forced the surviving Jews and Muslims to clear away the human remains and burn them in pyres, after which the cleanup crew themselves were killed and burned. This is exactly the the Sunder commandos in Auschwitz, okay, where, you know, you do the dirty work and then you die also. So the the surviving Jews, um, there were surviving Jews, and there were 300 Hebrew books, including the Aleppo Codex, were ransomed, and the ransom was paid for by wealthy Egyptian Jews. So if you recall, a number of years ago, we did a session on the Aleppo Codex, Mati Friedman's book with the Aleppo Codex, which is an excellent book, and if you haven't read it, read it. So it tells the story. Part of the story is that the, the, the book was in the hands of the, of the Karaites uh, in Jerusalem and eventually makes its way to Mitzrayim, to, to Jewish community in Cairo. Okay. The Crusaders needed a leader to be crowned the king of Jerusalem. Godfrey was named as the first king. He was known as the advocate for the Holy Sepulchre. It's a very odd name for a king. And uh, certainly other guy was made the, the patriarch, and it was going to be a Latin Catholic Jerusalem. Who's not going to be happy with that? Muslim. Well, of course, but the Orthodox, the Orthodox, the, Orthodox, the Greek, the Greek, the, the Greek Orthodox priests are not going to like that at all. And so they, the Greek Orthodox, had been in the city before the Christian takeover. During the Islamic period, they had been the, the Christian uh, presence in the city. So they have information about a certain item that they will refuse to divulge if the Catholics don't agree to some power-sharing structure, what item is that? Cross. The true cross. The true cross, they, they're hiding it. But the Catholics are very smart. What do they do? They torture the, the Greek Orthodox priests to reveal the location of the true cross, and under physical torture, they reveal it. Okay. So it's a, a classic example of uh, Christian charity. The, <laughs> all right. Now, only uh, Jerusalem was now secure, But it was empty. Who's living there? Only 300 knights and 200 soldiers remained, which was hardly enough to populate a city. So we're going to see that in the medieval period, the question of who the political ruler at the moment is, who they will bring in as a civilian population, will play an important role in figuring out the demographic future of the city. All right. Well, there were four crusader states established. One in Antioch, Edessa, Tripoli, and Jerusalem, the broader region of the Crusader kingdoms was known as Atramer, or across the sea, because it's across the sea from Europe. Only a few Islamic preachers at that time called for a uh, jihad to liberate Jerusalem. You know, when your team wins, what do you want? Another round. You know, I lost this round, but there'll be a next time. Well, in the moment, there were very few uh, uh, Islamic jihadists saying we have to now try to recover what we lost. It will happen soon enough, but right at, not in the immediate aftermath. Godfrey, well, 
Yes, locally, but you could have had people in Baghdad, in Cairo, wherever, saying, we're going to go march on, on the land of Israel, or uh, the, whatever in Arabic they call it, and say, we're going to, we're going to take back what we lost. When you, when yeah. you talk about Jerusalem, you talk about what we think of now as the old city. So what we think of the old city, that, uh, th- that wall was built by Suleiman in the 1500s. But the walls that were around the city in, in medieval times roughly corresponded to the same outline. A little bit different, not much, not much. Okay, so Godfrey died in 1100. His brother Baldwin became the king. The Tower of David, which still exists today, became the palace, treasury, prison, and garrison. In 1104, Baldwin decided to make Al-Aqsa Mosque into the royal palace. So here you see what? Some, the other team's holy place is now going to be used by our team for a mundane purpose. That's the Christian attitude. You know, they thought it was a shrine, a, a, a mosque. We'll use it as a palace. Didn't they use it as a stable? Eventually, the Solomon stables down below. Yes. Okay. So a cross was placed on top of the Dome of the Rock, and the Dome of the Rock was became known as Templum Domini, or the Temple of the Lord. So during the Crusader era, which doesn't last very long, they only control Jerusalem for about 88 years. Uh, there are two main temples, two main churches. Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus is supposedly killed, all right, Golgotha, and the Temple Mount, Arbet HaMikdash, Dome of the Rock, which to them is the Temple of the Lord. Al-Aqsa will eventually become the Temple of of Solomon, um, another religious facility. Okay, the king found a solution to the emptiness of Jerusalem. What did he do? In 1115, he raided across the Jordan, one of his many... uh, military adventures, and he encountered poor Syrian and Armenian Christians. He invited them to settle in Jerusalem. These poor Armenian and Syrian Christians are the ancestors of today's Palestinian Christians. Uh, The Palestinian Christian of today is sort of a beleaguered bunch. Uh, The Muslims kind of muscle them out of their their positions of significance uh, over the last uh, 100 years, especially over the last 50 years. The PLO and the PA uh, have not been good to Christians, so their political power has been diminished greatly. But there was a time when Palestinian Christians were a dominant feature, a dominant element within the political life in, in the land. So they come from those who were brought in by, uh, by Baldwin in the, in the 1100s. Baldwin II, his son, encouraged the development of certain uh, knightly orders, the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitallers. The Knights Templar converted the Islamic Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount, into a Christian complex of shrine, arsenal, and accommodation, meaning we pray there, we store our guns there, and we have dormitories there. Dormitories for who? Pilgrims. Pilgrims. You need somewhere to stay. Airbnb. Okay. So the what un- years, what years We're talking now in the 1100s. The underground stables of Solomon, which is what you referred to, uh, held the, the, the orders... 2,000 horses, and 1,500 pack camels. Another order, the Knights Hospitallers, operated near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. What was their job? To tend to the physical and medical needs of pilgrims. People got sick. People died. There were sometimes pandemics, epidemics. There was a time when 50 people were dying a day. Where were people buried, by the way? So one burial ground was in the Mamila, and there's some of it that still remains to this day. Not far from the Mamila, there's that old cemetery. If, if you know, you're coming down the hill, you see the Goetia Cemetery. Uh, and also in the Valley of Hell, Geben Hinom, there was uh, another 
open pit where pilgrims who, you know, had no family there got thrown in the pit. And that's where they were buried. Okay, so there's a cemetery near the Lion's Gate, which was to avoid uh, the, the Jews would, would fear they're contaminated by Tumas Mace, that they wouldn't try to go that way. Correct. There, there, there was an element of religious unscrupulousness in the whole thing. Yeah. Then, Muslim traders, were they allowed in the city? Uh, the, it's a Christian kingdom now. It's a Christian city. Do we let the Muslims in? To do business, yes, but you can't stay overnight. You got to leave before, before it gets dark out. That Christ's capital can't have a Muslim uh, sleep overnight. Then, Melisenda was queen of Jerusalem from 1131 to 1161. And she ruled over a city which was regarded as the center of the world. In the Gemara, how do they, in rabbinic literature, what's the expression? Tiburo Shel Olam, the navel of the world. And you may have seen pictures of old maps. And what does the map show? It shows three continents. Asia, okay, Europe, and Africa, and what's in the middle? Jerusalem, Jerusalem in the middle. And Jerusalem is now the center of the world. So whereas uh, when the Christians took over the city, it was kind of a disgusting, you know, uh, smelly place. 40, 50 years later, it's now a bustling place, uh, a, a capital city, a shrine city with a substantial population. Okay, the city combined the rough edges of a frontier town with the luxuries of a royal capital. There were 30,000 inhabitants and was dominated by God and by war. People had a good standard of living. There, were, uh, there was a sewage system that actually worked and people bathed daily. And most homes had lavatories, primitive lavatories. So unlike in an earlier time and even a later time when basic hygiene was a problem, this was actually a, a high point in the material culture of the city. Even the most Islamophobic crusaders recognized that they couldn't live like European Christians in Jerusalem. It's a different environment. The weather is different. You know, when you move from, from Tinek to, to, tell, to Yerushalayim, you can't live the same way. You take off the, the white and the black and you put on a knitted yarmulke, whatever it is you do, but you have to dress like a local. So people put on turbans and the flowing gowns. Instead of wearing a coat of mail, which, which, which was too heavy and they would die of sweat and, and dehydration, they dressed more like locals. But you have to be careful. Don't go too native. If you go too native, they'll think you became a Muslim. So the Christians are Christians, but they're looking more and more Eastern uh, in, or, in their orientation. Okay. The city is filled with soldiers and Eastern Christian pilgrims. There were also murderers, harlots, adventurers, uh, gambling, and European prostitutes. So there was everything. There was vice and there was piety. And sometimes there was vice and piety in the same person. Okay. Then, um, I mentioned the, the Knights Hospitallers. They took care of people when they got sick. There was a 2,000-person bed, 2,000-bed hospital, tremendous facilities. There was even a kosher and a halal kitchen for those of the minority faiths. Okay. Where was they locked into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre when the people of pilgrims and stuff, they weren't allowed They weren't allowed out, out, out at night. night, yeah, yeah. Was that about that? Around the, yes, yes, yes. So the, uh, the capture of the city was celebrated every year on July 15th. 
And the Holy Golden Gate was opened on that date and on Easter. So the Golden Gate, which today, what's the story of the Golden Gate? It's closed. It's been sealed shut. But back in those years, it was still, you could still open it. They opened it twice, twice a year. The, one of the um, most important relics that became famous around this time was the Holy Prepice. What was that? Was that the Jesus foreskin was was in the was uh, in the the grail the grill that covered up the rock in the dome of the rock so jesus foreskin was like the ultimate prized possession together with the true cross um and it was around this time of course it, it's total fiction they made it up but you know people make up relics all the time then uh in the 1140s rules banning jews and muslims were relaxed there were a few Jews living quietly in the city, but pilgrimage was still dangerous. In 1141, a famous Jew supposedly made it all the way to Jerusalem. Not yet. Later. In 1141, which Jew made it to Jerusalem, according to legend? Yehuda HaLevi. Yehuda HaLevi, the, the Spanish Jewish poet. And according to legend, what happened to him when he got to Jerusalem? that he was kissing the floor and a Frankish horseman ran over him and killed him. We don't know if that really happened because after all, who would have seen it happen to report that it happened? It probably is a, is a, is a legend, a myth, but okay, that's, that's the story. Now, he, he certainly got close to Jerusalem. Whether he ever made it, we can't be certain. Around this time, the kings of Jerusalem started to prefer Eastern doctors, not their own Frankish doctors and specifically Jewish doctors. So Jews would come to Jerusalem in that capacity as well. The Crusader state of Jerusalem was endangered in 1144 by Muslim invaders. And Melisendi appealed to Pope Eugenius II to call for help. And that became the Second Crusade. The Christians won. But in the 1160s, after another round of battles happened between the Christian King Amari and Muslim leader Nur al-Din, it was not clear that the Christians could hold on forever. The Christians are hanging on to Jerusalem by a thread. They would like to, to be strong, but remember, this is the Middle East. It's an Islamic world. And the Crusader kingdoms are by, are by their very nature, um, like a chatzitza, to use a halakhic terminology, in the middle of, of an Islamic world. It, it's an artificial thing that people came from Europe, conquered the swath of territory, an important swath of territory, and hoped to hold it indefinitely. They're not going to hold it indefinitely. Okay. Well, by the way, the Second Crusade, 1144, that's around the same time as what charges against the Jews in Europe. Not Black Clay, it's 1348. No, blood libel. So ritual murder charges and blood libel charges are emerging right around that time. William of Norwich was 1144. So things are bad for the Jews in Europe and getting potentially bad for the Jews in the Middle East as well because another round of, of crusading. Okay, well... Maimonides himself comes to Jerusalem in 1165, Rambam. He arrived on October 14th and prays at Har Hazetim, and then, from what we can gather, on the Temple Mount itself, although he would later rule that this is halakhically forbidden. So there's a certain incongruity between what he actually did and what appears to be his legal position in the Mishnah Torah. Um, he found a Christian city in which Jews were still officially banned. How many Jews were actually living in Jerusalem when the Rambam got there? There were four Jewish dyers living near the Tower of David under royal protection. 
dyeing, like the dyers, you know, putting color into the, the garments, not like the drop dead, uh, was a Jewish profession. Okay. In 1171, Saladin took over Egypt and made Maimonides the chief of the Jews and his personal physician. This is important because Saladin will eventually capture Jerusalem 16 years later. Okay. Baldwin IV was the leper king of Jerusalem between 1174 and 1185, and he was the heir to an embattled kingdom. Saladin was closing in on him, and the king's declining health matched the political and moral rot of the crusader kingdom. This kingdom is not going to last much longer, at least not in Yerushalayim. We shall see, even after it loses Jerusalem, it will still be called the crusader kingdom of Jerusalem for another hundred years, despite the fact that it's not in Jerusalem. It's actually located in Akko. All right. So in 1187, Saladin's army, Islamic army, defeats the Frankish king in the Galilee and then marches down the coast towards Jaffa and then inland towards Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem on September 20th. The Franks are prepared to die as holy martyrs. The Syrian Christians, who remember, don't like the Latin Catholics, are in cahoots with Saladin. And what do they do? They're a fifth column. They open the gates from the inside and allow the conquering Islamic hordes to come on in. The Christians threatened to destroy the Islamic holy places unless the negotiated deal was reached. So this is an interesting idea. If you know you're about to lose, but inside, and you're in, on the inside, and on the inside are, is, are religious shrines important to the people on the outside, then what do you do? We're going to blow it all up unless you let us live. Or, or make some deal where we, we don't get killed. All right? Okay? So they made a deal for the royals to be freed and for the rest of the population to be ransomed or sold into slavery, but not to be hacked to death. Saladin actually did, disliked violence and gratuitous killing. He was no dictator, but he enforced doctrinal Islam fairly strictly. He tolerated loose sexual behavior, and the pietists were aghast, but he was chivalrous, and he was willing to talk to his Christian opponents. He was not a man to, to, to kill everybody just for the fun of it. It wasn't his style. So Saladin watched as the Latin Christians, the Catholics, left Jerusalem forever. If you go to Jerusalem today, does the Catholic Church have a strong presence there? Not really. What Christians have a strong presence in Jerusalem? Armenian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, Coptic, all right, some you know, Calvinists and Protestants have, you know, from the last 100, 200 years, they have a presence there from the, from the Western Europeans. But Catholics don't have much of a presence in Jerusalem. Uh, why? Well, they got booted out at around this time. Then, thousands could not afford their ransom and were sold into slavery. On October 2nd, Saladin entered the city and he ordered the haram cleansed of impurity. And they tore down the cross that was atop the Dome of the Rock and they destroyed all the paintings of Jesus. His mission was to create an Islamic Jerusalem, and he considered destroying the dung heap, also known as the Church, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You know, that's their religion, so maybe we should just destroy it. In the end, he decided not to. What did he do? He closed it for three days, then handed the control over to the Greek Orthodox, and sealed up the opening, leaving only a narrow passageway, so that the guard at the door the soldiers could control the foot traffic and control the revenue of, you know, you got to pay the admission fee. So it becomes like a tourist attraction and somebody's making a few, a few dollars off of it. Church bells were banned. 
Uh, and the city now has a very Islamic flavor again, with tolerance for some Christianity, but it's only tolerance. He needed a population to rebuild the demographic strength of the city. Muslims alone would not suffice. Again, where are you going to get people from? Who's going to live in Jerusalem? So he invited the Armenians, which still exist to this day, the Armenian quarter. So the Armenian population in Jerusalem goes, goes back 1,600 years. There was a first group that was around the year 400, but there's another group that comes in the 1190s under Saladin because the city needs people. That's the Armenian quarter of today. And Jews, where is he going to get Jews from? Ashkelon, Yemen, and Morocco. So Jews from fairly close, but also from pretty far away, were brought in to live in the holy city. Uh, Christians tried to recover Jerusalem by launching a third crusade in 1189 to 1192. And they almost were successful. In 1190, Richard Lionheart, King of England, and Philip Augustus, King of France, set out to liberate Jerusalem. Uh, And as England was engulfed in crusader revivalism, the Jews faced a real problem. What happens in 1190 in England? Not yet. There's a massacre of the Jews of York. Okay, the Jews will be expelled about 100 years later in 1290 completely. But many Jews leave because the massacre at York was a real disaster. We have Aquinas and Tishabov recalling the massacre of York and Bopart. Okay, well, Saladin is afraid. Richard the Lionheart has a big army and he wants to negotiate a deal to save Jerusalem. But the Christians call his bluff. The Christian army has a slogan, help us, holy sepulcher. Now they're, they're going, help us, holy sepulcher. They, they want to win. Richard was willing to compromise. His sister would marry Saladin's brother, Safadin, and the Christians would keep the coast and have free access to Jerusalem. But the negotiations failed. There was a stalemate. And in 1191, Richard retreats. Instead, he takes Ashkelon, which is the gateway to Egypt. He's not done yet, but he makes a strategic withdrawal and occupies some territory. And now we're ready to offer a new deal. So Richard offers the following deal to Saladin and pay close attention and tell me what it's similar to. There will be a partition of Jerusalem with Muslims keeping the Haram and the Tower of David and the Christians getting everything else. What is that similar to? It's similar to Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert. Okay, what's, what's Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert's deal? Bill Clinton, okay, the, the, the Camp David. So the, Israel keeps Jerusalem, including the, the old city. But what? But the Muslims get the Temple Mount. So this now is, the Muslims will get the Temple Mount and the Tower of David, and the Christians will get the rest of the city. The difference between the year 2000 or 2007 and the year 1190 is that in the Camp David version, the side that is currently holding the city gets to keep the city and coughs up the holy places, whereas according to this version, the city, the, the, the side that, that doesn't have the city gets the city, but chooses to forego advancing on the holy places. All right, but There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. So if it happened in 1190, it could happen in the year 2000. All right. Each side, however, wants the whole thing, you know? So in 1190, it was the functional equivalent of, you know, the Likud versus, versus Hamas. No side is willing to compromise. There's no Labor Party. There's no P, PLO. Uh, extreme on both sides. Everybody wants the whole thing. 
So in March, Safadin makes a new offer. We'll give you the, the we'll return the true cross and we'll give you access to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But uh, the chivalrous theater between the two sides doesn't really get them anywhere. In 1191, as Saladin was preparing to die in defeat, the Franks packed up and left. Why? If they were on the verge of winning, why did they leave? The answer is Richard the Lionheart heard rumors that back home in England, his brother John, there only was one King John, and they named the bathroom after him, okay? Uh, so he, he was threatening a rebellion against his brother's rule. So in order to save his own rule, Richard had to pack up and go home and leave Jerusalem. Okay, fine. But in 1192, the Sultan and the King agreed to the Treaty of Jaffa, which was the first ever partition of Palestine. So if you thought that the Peel Plan of 1937, which we've discussed many times uh, you know, by the British, was the first ever partition of Palestine, it was not. The Treaty of Jaffa in 1192 was. What happened? The Christians got to keep their state with Akko as the capital up in the north. Okay, Saladin keeps Jerusalem while granting Christians access to their holy places in the city. And Saladin allowed the priests back in. The Latin priests, the Catholics, the Orthodox protested, and Saladin said, learn to share. Learn to share. And from here, what do we have? Agreements in some of the key Christian shrines, whereby not one faction controls the whole shrine, but there has to be a rotation play uh, you know, for multiple different denominations to have some involvement in, in the church. No, no, within Christianity, the various types of Orthodox, the Latin, and whomever. Okay, so Saladin died in 1193. His son Avdal inherited the throne and settled North Africans in the Maghreb quarter near the Western Wall. Okay, that settlement continued to exist until... About three minutes after the Six-Day War was over, when what happened? The bulldozers come on in, and they knock it out and make the Kotel Plaza. We will spend a session discussing the, the action of bulldozing the Maghreb Quarter and the political turmoil that Israel had to face because of that action in the international community. Okay, so then... Muazam was another uh, uh, sultan a few years later, was a prolific builder in Jerusalem. He moved 300 Jewish families into Jerusalem in 1209, coming from where? From France and from England. Now remember, there were big rabbis from, uh, from Narbonne who came to, to Jerusalem around that time. And this is recorded in Tosfus. Tosfus talks about this. And I've also spoken in one of our prior classes about a detail of the Jewish calendar that changed as a result of this episode of the 300 families moving to Jerusalem. And what detail of the Jewish calendar changed? What am I talking about? Chodesh Tishrei, just gave it away. Chodesh Tishrei. What holidays in Tishrei? Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. How many days of Rosh Hashanah? Two days because of the Adam. Okay, good. So in Israel, Rosh Hashanah was one day for 800 years from the time of the fixed calendar at Hill of the Second in the year 358 up until the arrival of the, of, the, of the French rabbis. When the French rabbis came around this time, the Jews of Eretz Yisrael agreed to do a two-day Rosh Hashanah. Why did they agree to a two-day Rosh Hashanah? Okay, so now there's, there's an explanation. Because it says, that uh, God looks out on, over, over the land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And what? 
כל שנה שאין מרין בתחילסה, מרין בסופה. Any year when you don't sound the truer in the beginning of the year in Rosh Hashanah, you're going to sound it for an emergency by the end of the year. So failure to do shofar on Rosh Hashanah is going to guarantee crisis and disaster for the Kehillah. Well, why wouldn't you do shofar? Shabbos! And if it's a one-day yantif, there's no second day, you had no shofar. So people were scared out of their minds. Whenever Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbos, what's the solution? The Frankish rabbis want to have two days? Because they're going, fine, we'll have two days yantif. Okay, that's, that's what happened. I thought people set up the yantif and the Adem would come. Okay, that's in, 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 in temple days when they had Al-Piharu'iyah on the basis of, of testimony. We, we could spend a whole hour on that. Right? We don't have time for now. But once there was a fixed calendar, there was no longer any logical basis for the local inhabitants to keep a second day. So they didn't for eight centuries until the French rabbis showed up. Okay, that was just an aside, a little fun aside. Now, uh, the achievements of building up the city including its Jewish population, were threatened, were imperiled in 1218 by the Fifth Crusade. So Muazam decided he's going to make a tough decision. What's his tough decision? Tear down the city walls. Why? Why tear down your defenses if you're afraid about a Christian takeover? The answer is, when you think it's a foregone conclusion that the other side is going to win, you would rather the city that they inherit not be a well-defended one, but rather be an open one that you could recover at a later time. So therefore, destroy the city walls. So as a result of this action, there were no walls of Yerushalayim. It was not a, a krach. It was not a ir mukefet choma. For the next 300 years, until, until uh, um, in Suleiman, in the 1500s, they built them back up in the 1530s. So for 310 years, there are 20 years, there are no walls around Jerusalem. It becomes an unprotected city. It was a defenseless, half-empty village, basically, and does not re- truly recover its prestige until the 19th century. Okay. No, people are in charge. It's just a, it's, it's not a well-protected enclave. It's, it's open. So we're going to see that for the next 30 years, it will change hands a few times between Christians and Muslims, but after 1244, it's Muslim, Till 1917, till, till General Allenby walks on foot through the Jaffa Gate in the you know December uh, December 11th, 1917. Okay. Muslim or Ottoman? Muslim of various ethnic varieties, including Ottoman, for 400 years. Okay. So Frederick II, known as the Wonder of the World, but Andre the Giant was the one, the eighth Wonder of the World. But all right, he became the Holy Roman Emperor in 1225, and he decided that as King of Jerusalem, so to speak. He had to liberate the city. So he set off in 1227, and he negotiated with Camille, the sultan, a 10-year truce in 1228. What was the terms of this truce? The Christians received Bethlehem and Jerusalem and a corridor to the sea. The Muslims kept the Temple Mount and freedom of worship. So what do we find? Another example of a partition of a holy city. But in this case, what occurred? The invaders were given Jerusalem. Not just a partition of Eretz Israel, but a partition of Jerusalem that was put into effect where the invader got the city, but the, 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 the uh, side that was holding the city to begin with only retains the holiest of places. In both these cases, it shows that the Jews should stop. And if anything, it should be reckoned that the uh, 
that the Arabs are willing to give things away. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Okay. No, so it's a, it was the most daring peace treaty ever concluded in Jerusalem's history, the year 1228, the 10-year truce. But extremists on both sides were, of course, not happy. So what, 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 what's the consequence of this? Well, the patriarch, the leader of the church, excommunicated the Christian king Frederick, and the Templars complained about the loss of the Temple Mount. Streets were empty, many Muslims left, and Orthodox Syrians were upset about the Latin Catholic resurgence. Frederick showed up to Jerusalem, and he was booed, okay, by, the, by his own clergy. But he insisted that the deal be kept honestly, and when there was no muazin call to prayer in the morning when he woke up, he said, why was there no Islamic call to prayer? And his handler said, well, we thought you wouldn't like it. He says, no, I want it, just to prove the point that we're, we're keeping the deal fairly. They were allowed to do it within the terms of the deal. Let them have their call to prayer. Okay. But some thought that Frederick was really like an apicorus, that he wasn't a true Christian. They accused him of being an atheist, a closet Muslim. Every book, every name under the sun was thrown at him because of this deal. Like Yitzhak Rabin, you know, they, they, they called him, they put a cafe on him, they put, called him a Nazi. That's what happened to Frederick, because although he got Jerusalem, he so-called gave away the Temple Mount. All right. Jews, again, were banned with this Christian resurgence. But in 1244... Tartar horsemen, led by Barka Khan, entered the city and thoroughly destroyed Jerusalem. It would not be Christian again until 1917, as I said. The Mamluk period is kind of a boring and ugly period in the history of Jerusalem. It lasts from 1260 to 1517. In 1263, the Mamluk leader Baibars decided to build up the Temple Mount and the Muslim Quarter. So we had the Armenian Quarter, now we're going to have the Muslim Quarter is being built up on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. The Mamluks were uh, from to the north. Uh, they were basically like Turkmen, not Turkish, but Turkmen, uh, and they were intolerant military dictators. Gone was the day of Saladin's chivalry. The Jews were forced to wear yellow turbans. The Christians were forced to wear blue ones, and the days of being protected dimi were over. Now, on a whim, you could be expelled or worse. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, which wasn't actually in Jerusalem, was really at Akko, ceased to exist in 1291, and that was the end of all the Crusader kingdoms. So in Islamic theology, the Crusader kingdom was always a thorn in their side and an illegitimate um, entity. Therefore, what the state of Israel is compared to, the Crusader kingdom, that the Jews have no business being here, that just like we kicked out the Crusaders, we'll kick out the Zionists. Okay. Well, Jerusalem is, is hardly a city at this point. It's a half-deserted village and raided at will by Mongol horsemen. Who arrived in 1267? In 1267, the Ramban shows up. And uh, he, had, he, he was running away from Spain after the disputation at Barcelona, where he won, but you know, was, wasn't allowed to win. Uh, and he was shocked to find that the city of Jerusalem only had 2,000 inhabitants, of whom 300 were Christian and two were Jews. What kind of Jews? They were dyers. As I said, the dyers were always allowed to stick around, like the laundry men. All right. Well, the Ramban commandeered a broken down house and established a synagogue. According to legend, although this may not really be the case, this is the origin of the Ramban synagogue. Scholars tend to think that what we call the Ramban synagogue, which is I mean, it's, it's located underneath the Churva. If you know where the Churva is, it's like right behind it and underneath it. So that was the location of the Ramban Synagogue. 
maybe he had a shul, but that spot was from 100 years later and was used continuously for the next 600 years until 1948. They brought a few people in. Okay. He also recovered some Torah scrolls that had been hidden away from the Mongols. All right. Then, in 1317, Nasir Muhammad, another Mamluk leader, decided to build up houses along the Western Wall. It was at this time that most of the Western Wall was concealed from view. How much of the Western Wall is exposed nowadays? So there are three sections. There is what we call the Kotel Plaza from, the, from after the Six-Day War, although that has basically that space has been exposed and, and been used as a pr- place of prayer for hundreds of years. There's also the place by Robinson's Arch, uh, which is the Ezrat Yisrael nowadays, you know, the non-Orthodox uh, prayer section by the archaeological garden. And then there's also, the third spot is the Kotel Katan, the Little Kotel. Who's been to the Little Kotel? You been there? Anybody? The Kotel Katan? So, not underneath. At ground level. The Kotel Katan is about 500 feet to the left of the Kotel Plaza. But yeah, you can you can get there by leaving the Kotel Plaza through the, you know, the Muslim Quarter exit. Uh, and then going down about two blocks and making a right turn and going in another two blocks or one block and behold, you see a wall and that's that's the Temple Mount retaining wall. That's the Kotel, but it's known as the Kotel Katan. It's only about 20 feet wide. I remember I, my first trip to Israel in 20, 2002, uh, we, they took us there and it's very claustrophobic because it's a narrow alleyway and if people want to daven, but you're in a bad neighborhood and if bad guys come in, you have nowhere to, nowhere to go. There's nowhere to move. So I got out of there as quickly as I could. All right. Then, in 1405, Jerusalem had 6,000 residents, including 200 Jewish families and 100 Christian families. There were no Christian expeditions to rescue Jerusalem, yet still the pilgrimage was very popular for all faiths. But it was dangerous. There were villains, and Jews were never quite safe under Mamluk rule. In the 15th century, the community grew to 1,000 people, praying at the Ramban Synagogue, near the gates of the Temple Mount, and on Har Hazetin. In the late 15th century, the Mamluks were losing their grip. And in 1480, the Bedouin attacked Jerusalem and basically sacked the city and destroyed much of it. Rabbi Vadya Bartanura showed up shortly after the, the Bedouin sacking of the city, and he arrived and said, the place is ruined. There's hardly anything here. And the Mamluks were not long for this earth, because by, 19, by 1517, they would be ousted by the Ottomans. The Ottomans would hold on longer than any other group. For 400 years, they would retain control of the city. However, as we shall see in next week's class, the Ottomans did not really retain absolute control over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, by late, the late Ottoman period, was really a bunch of little diplomatic and consular fiefdoms that European powers, and even the Americans, but from... The, the, the major Western powers all wanted a piece of the pie, of the holiness pie. And they would send representatives, diplomats, consular officials, plop them down there, build them a little, little, little palace, little mansion, and protect their citizens who were going on pilgrimage and living the life of a holy person in Jerusalem. So yes, the Turkish Ottomans are in control, but they have to give up a lot of real political power to those who are far stronger than they are. So stay tuned, not next week, but in two weeks, we will discuss Ottoman Jerusalem.
Okay, folks, a good night to one and all.